Hey guys, and welcome to Hunting Land, presented by Great Days Outdoors Magazine. If you'd like to stay up to date on hunting tactics, land management, land values, and land market dynamics, this is the podcast for you. This week's show is brought to you by The Hunting Exchange. In this day and age, we all know it is a struggle to sell hunting equipment on large social media platforms, and that's where The Hunting Exchange steps in. The Hunting Exchange is an app for iOS and Android that gives you a one-stop shop to buy and sell your hunting gear. Whether you're looking to sell your bow, broadheads, technical apparel, stands, saddles, or anything in between, this secure platform allows you to buy and sell gear with confidence. As a buyer, each dollar you spend is insured by PayPal. And as a seller, there are no hidden charges like other platforms, and listing items is also free. Gone are the days of having listings removed from Facebook and worrying about being banned and removed from groups for wanting to sell something as simple as your bow or knives. So head on over to the App Store or Google Play and experience a new hassle-free way to buy and sell hunting gear by downloading the Hunting Exchange app today. And also brought to you by Great Days Outdoors Magazine. Are you frustrated by your typical hunting and fishing magazines? Are you tired of reading content meant for the guys up north or in the Midwest? Don't get left behind following the guidance of the guys who don't hunt and fish in your home state. Pick up a Great Days Outdoors Magazine subscription and become a better Southern outdoorsman. Great Days Outdoors Magazine can be found at your local Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, Tractor Supply Company, Rural King, Bass Pro Shops, Academy Sports and Outdoors, or you can save and buy online at greatdaysoutdoors.com. I'm your host, Joe Baia. Butch, I'm excited about today's show for a couple of reasons. One, it's the end of the steer season uh, here in the South. Got Still got a few days left, and uh, this is really a great time to review the kit that you had put together this year and be thinking about maybe what you want to change. Uh, were you happy with the gear that you had? Did it do everything you wanted it to do? I know I've got some stuff that, that I want to change out and that's every year for me. You know, I kind of evolve as I go, see if a lot of times the marketing doesn't live up to expectations. And I realize that mm, got to go a different direction before next season, but with everything going on, you better not wait till next season to get your kit figured out. Cause there may not be anything on the shelves. Uh, by the time you make that decision today, yeah. we're going to be diving deep into everything hunting binoculars. And that is something, man, I just, I love my binoculars. I mean, I use them constantly in the field. I've also had a bad pair of binoculars before, <laughs> and it's a very important piece. It's brutal. It's definitely a vital piece of equipment whenever you go in the woods for anything, not just for hunting. I mean, uh, obviously hunting, you need a great pair for glassing and low light situations, but just spotting in general, you know, you always got to have a good pair in the truck or on the buggy with you. Um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to, uh, getting down to the nitty gritty and seeing just what makes, you know, the best binoculars so great. Yeah. And for me, you know, the second reason I'm excited about this is that if I walk into a sporting goods store right now and I grab a $3,000 pair of binoculars and a $300 pair of binoculars and hold them up right next to each other, I can't tell the difference. Right. Can't tell the 10X yeah. difference. So anyways. what I want to do today is really dive off into all the different decision points you've got with binoculars and what are, what are you not paying attention to that you should be paying attention to? Why is there so much variability in price? What are you really getting for that increase in price? And, you know, kind of breaking this down based on your needs and your budget to figure out what are those things that you really need to pay attention to if you're in the market to switch up your binoculars. So this week's guest is Mike Jensen. He is the CEO of German Precision Optics. But before we get there this week, we want to talk about something that ah, has been a thorn in my side here lately uh you know i had to put my buggy as i like to call it my utv in the shop Uh oh you know you can't you were you and i were talking about it butch like if you own a piece of ground something like a utv is invaluable you know Agreed. you, you, you can gotta have it nowadays get it. yeah i mean you just gotta have it and it's one of those things where once you have it you don't you don't want to do without it yeah you can't go to the camp without it you know but man prices are going up labor's going up We've definitely, I've definitely seen, you know, just the time to get that piece of equipment back out of the shop, you know, gosh, and that's, I need that for work, you know? So I'm kind of thinking like, man, do I need to just buy a new one, you know? So that way I can not have Always any have downtime. A functioning one. Yeah. Right. Just not have downtime. And, 
I think for a lot of people that are just getting into the buying their first piece of land, uh, or if they own land, you know, they know the importance of having good equipment. Those folks that are just getting into buying it, they're starting to see, okay, buying land, I'm going to need, there's some things I'm going to need. Let's yeah. learn a little bit about, you know, what's out there in terms of equipment financing. Those With those prices going up, maybe some people thought they were going to be paying cash and now they may be taking out a loan. To do that, uh, we're talking with Darren Hammonds with First South Farm Credit. Darren, welcome to the show, man. First off, tell everybody which, uh, which office you're out of. Well, thank you guys for having me. Yeah, I'm um, I'm the principal loan officer in the Montgomery branch. That's where I'm located. Well, well, Darren, are, are you seeing you know the same thing we're talking about? Uh, are are you seeing prices going up for used and new equipment when it when it comes to the types of equipment that y'all loan on? We are seeing that um, your used equipment is um, has definitely gone up in price, and it is you know because it's in such demand whether people are wanting to get the pre-def models or uh, whether they're using it on their hunting lease or whether they're using it for full-time farmers or not. Uh, but we are seeing that the used equipment is highly valuable right now. Well, speaking of that, let's start there. What type of equipment do y'all offer loans on? I mean, you know, we sell land, we sell farmland, recreational land, timberland. I mean, so lots of different types of land. We have a lot of different types of folks that are listening do y'all loan on just farm equipment or where does the, the line drawn? Well, I like to classify it as ag equipment and that would be any kind of tractor for any kind of landowner, whether it is a full-time farmer or whether it is a recreational landowner, a rural home loaner. As long as it is a considered an ag piece of equipment, we can make a loan on it. And that would include all your tractors, implements, and things like that. What about UTVs? Typically, in, in most cases, for most of your listeners, that probably we would be no. But if they are a full-time farmer, we could make we could make that loan. Typically, UTVs or ATVs are considered a recreational type vehicle. Darren, I personally have never financed a tractor, um, but if somebody is looking to do that, what can you expect as far as terms and the rates right now for those terms? Yeah, as um, far as terms, I mean, um, we try to model our payment and loan programs try to work with the individual but typically you'll see anywhere from a three to a five-year type loan if it's a new piece of equipment could go up to seven years on it you know rates are typically right now in the high threes up to the low fours so threes to fours let me ask you this if somebody is they know they're going to need a piece of equipment what happens if uh, a piece of equipment comes with a piece of land that they've bought. You know, a lot of times we'll have sellers that they want to sell everything. Right. When, when that happens and you guys are doing the loan on the, on the piece of land, is that equipment rolled into that loan or do, is there a separate uh, loan that has to take place? Well, I would suggest that we do a, a, a separate loan on the piece of equipment because you wouldn't want to term out that piece of equipment over a 30 year term, obviously because it depreciates over time. And so I would suggest doing a smaller term on that piece of equipment. Makes sense. What are you looking at as far as a typical down payment? What is somebody looking to buy a piece of ag equipment? What should they expect to come out of pocket? Got a couple of different options. You know, if they call one of our branches directly, typically it would be a 25% down payment. However, we can take other, if they own more equipment, we can take other equipment as collateral to make up that 25%. So that is a couple of different options there. So Darren, how does that change on used versus new? Yeah, well, we can do used or new. Um, the direct calling the branches does not change. It's still a 25% down payment. Uh, we do have another option for people that's a, called Farm Credit Express. Um, it is a point of purchase type program where people can go directly to dealers, approved dealers throughout the state, um, and they can buy used equipment through that and new equipment, whatever the dealer has. And typically the terms would be, as we had talked about earlier, there would be anywhere from three to seven years. Rates would still be in the mid threes to lower fours through that program. And the great thing about that is it's kind of just like when you go buy a car. You know, you show up at a car dealership and you walk in and you and you uh, get approved right there. That's how this would work. It typically takes a few minutes for somebody to go through that process. And um, then after they're approved, their loans will be housed with whatever local branch they are near 
And so that could still be used with a, like a private party sale. Like if, you know, a neighbor wants to buy a tractor from his neighbor, they could still come to you guys for financing on that. Yes, they could certainly do that. Uh, that would be just dealing with, uh, would not be part of the farm credit express system, but it would be a direct loan with, with any of our branches. Yes, we could certainly do that. Darren, with, with prices changing seemingly every day, you know, and people willing to pay more and more and more, how does that challenge you guys as lenders with valuation? Because like, I know, for example, I, you know, unfortunately I'm in the market for a new truck and I was looking at what my current truck is worth and gosh, I could get what I paid for it, you know, three years ago right now. And I've put a lot of miles on that truck. So I would imagine the same things happen in the tractor market. Uh, and like you mentioned earlier in the show, like I've got a pre-def utility tractor and I've been told every time I've had it in to have service done, man, you never need to sell this. Or, or if you want to sell this, we've got a list of people that are looking for these pre-def models. So how does that challenge you guys to be able to loan when these valuations really are all over the place? I don't know. Yeah. It seems like they're good for about 24 hours. Well, and it is a snapshot in time when somebody is buying that piece of equipment. So we, we try to, you know, watch the, uh, watch the market, whether that's through, um, appraisals or whether that is through uh, auctions and you know just like what we're hearing out there right now that these used equipment is is in high demand uh, as you mentioned the pre-def tractors are in high demand and everybody wants those tractors which of course when demand goes up um, that means the price goes up as well so we we try to watch several different things so that we can you know make a very good judgment of what what the actual value of that piece of equipment is. All right, Darren, before we let you go, man, Joe and I were talking about before we started this recording, just <laughs> Joe's in the market for a truck, like he was saying, but man, it seems that, and I've been getting emails from Ford blowing me up. They want my 2015 F-150 bad. It's really low in miles and they want a lot of money. They want to give me a lot of money for it. Um, so I've been kind of shopping around on the internet, despite my wife's objections about, you know, getting a, a truck that I would have to, you know, if you sell your truck, you got to get a new truck. Right. The prices of the gap between used vehicles and new vehicles now seem to be getting way smaller. You could get a new vehicle for not much more than a used vehicle. Are you seeing that in the ag equipment business? And, and what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, we are seeing that to some extent, uh, probably not as much as in the truck market, but uh, the older tractors are bringing a lot more money than what they have been bringing. So you just have to weigh your different options and see what best fits you and your finances. And the main thing to remember about First South is that we we can do either one. We can do the new models or the or used equipment or new equipment. It doesn't matter either way. As I said before, we'll try to format a program around you. Well, Darren, I know uh, you guys have offices all around. So if somebody wants to get in touch with you guys or get in touch with you directly, how do they do that? And then also, what do they need to be prepared for when it comes specifically to equipment financing from a from a financial documentation standpoint? Is this something they would want to get, you know, approved for ahead of time? And, and if not, you know, what do they really need to bring to the table uh, to be able to get approved? First thing they can do, they can go to our website, which is firstsouthfarmcredit.com, and they could find a branch local to them, or they're certainly welcome to call me directly. And uh, my number is 334 265 eight five three five and i will i will be trying to help them the best i could if if they had needed to go to another branch say they were north alabama something would be more than happy to connect them with the loan officer up there um as far as financials in most cases you know what we're seeing anything under like a hundred thousand dollar uh loan we could probably just nothing but an application we can email them an application they fill out that application and send it back to us and that's far as we would need documentation on something like that when we get above that above that level um then we, we may have to get into for your salary type people pay stubs and um tax returns and that kind of thing well darren it's been enlightening man it's definitely a uh, an interesting time to be in the market <laughs> for just about anything anything is correct yep. yeah so uh appreciate you sharing uh, what's going on on the equipment side and uh we'll be checking back in with you soon find out if we Got any changes coming up? Thanks for joining us. Thank you guys for having me. Butch, today yeah. we're going to be diving deep into everything hunting binoculars. So this week's guest is Mike Jensen. He is the CEO of German Precision Optics. 
Mike, welcome to Huntland. You know, just to start things off, first off, tell us how in the world you became the CEO of German Precision Optics and where do you like to hunt, man? Yeah, I grew up in Arizona as a kid and I grew up as a kid and on a family gun shop floor. So, you know, as, as a kid, you know, my dad was a competitive shooter and my brother was a hardcore, you know, Western hunter kind of guy. Drug me into the shooting, long range shooting, competitive shooting, and then you know, kind of hardcore backpack hunting in, in the Western U.S. So, you know, when you grow up that way, it's part of your love. It's part of your life. It's part of your culture. And you, over the years, start zeroing in on the right tools that, uh, you know, that help you be successful. So grow, growing up in that environment, you know, with people around me in that environment, um, it was in the mid-90s. I, you know, wanted to leave the family business, the family gun shop, and get into factory management. So I took a job at Swarovski when they were just, you know, just kind of getting going in, in the mid nineties as a national sales manager. And I was there for eight years as national sales manager as we got that company well on its way to where it is now. Um, I was a contributor. I can't say I caused it, but you know, they, they made great stuff and I was with a great company and a great brand. Uh, after that, I wanted to get back into the gun side of the business. So I took a job at Remington as vice president of sales. And, you know, I ran, ran a third of Remington's business for six years. And then I was heavily recruited by Zeiss Sports Optics to be their CEO of Zeiss USA. So I ran Zeiss USA as CEO for, you know, quite a few years. And uh, the CEO of the Zeiss Global Group called me and said, um, you know, he called me from Germany and says, Mike, I've got this great idea. You know, I have access to the Zeiss supply chain of their knowledge and I have access to some of the world's best engineers. Um, I have access over here to to build and launch a um, product line, you know, you're running USA and, you know, you've got a, a deep understanding of that marketplace and that consumer plus you're a user uh, of the product. So let, let's build a partnership here. You know, I own and operate uh, GPO USA. We went live in 2017. So we're on our fifth year now. These, you know, these colleagues of mine over in Germany are building some of the best optics in the world. And I'm kind of an optic snob growing up in those other brands so it's like, okay, I can do this, but I can only do this if, if it's good quality and we're building something that serves a, you know, the user's needs. So, uh, yeah, that's how I got into GPO. Well, Mike, yeah, this is probably going to be the last question I ask you today, but given that background, I'm going to make it the first question that I ask you today. Why are German optics so revered? I mean, from the time I was a little boy hunting, my first experiences with hunting, it was almost like, uh, Butch and I were laughing about it yesterday. It's, it's almost like a, you know, fancy piece of jewelry, you know I mean? Guys that, in the woods, you know, they're like, yep, that's German glass. You know I mean? They're, they're like really, ex yeah. <laughs> it's a big deal. So why, why are those optics so yeah. revered? You know, it's a cultural thing. You know, the, the Germans are, it's kind of in their culture to be precise engineers and to push the benchmark of uh, technical and optical features. And, you know, from, from an American standpoint, our culture here is, Give me a product that's half done. Let me get halfway over the stream and we can change horses in the middle of the stream if we have to. That's, <laughs> that's how Americans take product to market. My colleagues over there say, no, not yet. It's not right yet. It's not perfect yet. We want to make this change. We want to make that change. And I'm telling them, come on, guys, it's, it's good enough. All and they're right. like, no, it's not good enough for us. Yeah. Um, so, you know, this, this blend between an American culture and a German culture to do what we're doing with GPO is pretty dynamic, but that is why it's a cultural thing that these guys just want it perfect. And, you know, my, my colleague over in Germany tells me, uh, you need to be, you know, a little more, um, in control and a little more process oriented. And I said, okay, well, those are our American weaknesses. You need to be a little faster to market and, right. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, speed things up a little bit, but it's a good combination. And it's why we, um, why we're successful doing what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, it's an interesting dynamic. I'm sure it, it is. is uh, funny. It's admirable and frustrating at the same time, I'm sure on <laughs> yeah. a business, from a business sense, but you know, today we want to ask you specifically about, let's talk about binoculars. Okay. This is one of the most important pieces of equipment any hunter carries into the field. I think that goes without saying, and, you know, kind of leading in this conversation, supply chains being what they are, delays being what they are, it's never been a better time right now to change a piece of kit is right after the season because you may, <laughs> you may not have it around next year going into the hunting season. So when it comes to binoculars, what design differences does a hunter really need to compare? And, and I want to talk about 
low light first. If low light is his biggest concern, but here in the South, a lot of deer hunters, which is probably you know, the main concern for a lot of hunters. You know, you want that, you want that last 20 minutes to be your, uh, you know, the, gold, the golden minutes. 20. Sure. Yeah. In the morning, yeah. the first, first 20 as well. Yeah. So if we're talking about low lights that they're like, man, I don't care about anything else, but low light. I want the best in terms of low light. What does somebody need to be looking at? Break down the jargon so that somebody can say, can, can compare different construction and design differences. Well, there's a variety of factors. There's some technical features, and then obviously there's some hardware features. Binoculars work really well in low light when they're transmitting the available light through the entire optical system. There's a lot of lenses in a rifle scope or a binocular. And being able to see in low light condition means you want as much of that light to get all the way through all of those lenses on an optical system as you possibly can. You do that a couple of ways. You do that with excellent glass quality, you know, the best glass quality you can get your hands on. Um, but you also do that with uh, the coatings that go on the lenses, the better quality coatings that go on the lenses. Without any coatings on a glass lens, when a beam of light hits a piece of glass, you're losing 5% of the light trying to get through it off of reflection. So light comes into glass, it hits the surface, you lose 5% when it hits the surface. And you lose 5% when it hits the next surface as it exits the piece of glass. So as you start stacking lenses and lenses and lenses to make a great optical device, if you don't have them coded where that light's actually transmitting through the glass instead of bouncing off of the glass, that gives you a low light performing optic. And, you know, the good companies are running in the 90, 92, 93% total light transmission through the optical system. That way your eye looks bright. Now that gets the light through the optic. The other trick is in low light, your pupils are be, you know, starting to dilate. They're opening up saying, feed me more light. I need to see something, right? That's a mm -hmm. normal, it's a normal process. Sure. Now the light beam that comes out of a binocular. Okay. You've got 92% of the available light coming through through the binocular. The diameter of the beam of light is also has to do with how bright the binocular is because if it's a small beam of light and your pupils are real big saying, feed me more light, the binoculars look a little bit dim. Or if it's a big beam of light coming out of the binoculars, then, and your pupils opened up and you're putting a big, all of a sudden the binocular looks bright. So you can have a small binocular that's transmitting 92% of the light, and you can have a big binocular transmitting 92% of the light, and one looks dim. Well, that's just because of the configuration of the binocular. Yeah, it's kind of like shining a spotlight through a door versus shining a spotlight through the keyhole in the door. Exactly. Uh, so what, Interesting. You, you mentioned the light transmission, right? Now we've got, we've got a metric. Now we can go in and we can say, all right, this binocular is 92%. This binocular is 90%. 92 is better than 90. Got it. How about that beam of light? What's that metric we're looking for there? Yeah, your, your pupil, an adult's pupil, when it's bright, bright, bright outside, you know, it's a tiny little dot letting the light in of, you know, one or two millimeters, a tiny little black pupil. But when it's dark, the younger generation, you know, like a kid, you know, have you ever looked at a kid in the dark, his pupil like fills his whole eye? But as you get older, your eyes becomes a little less flexible. Um, little kids' pupils can open to seven or eight millimeters. Adults, as you get older, you know, when you're in your 30s, all of a sudden it's five or six. And when you're in your 40s, it's four or five. And when you're in your 50s, it's three or four. If you look at an older guy, you have a conversation with an old man and you look at his eyes and it's not very bright out, he still has a tiny little pupil because your eyes become less flexible. Hmm. So the trick there is selecting a binocular based on a, a lot of factors. I mean, if you want the perfect fit, it's gonna be based on what you're using it for, what field condition, how old are you and how much light can you get into your eye? And then you can get down into how much do I wanna spend and, and what other features you want. So Mike, one of the other main things I pay attention to with any of my gear is durability. I, I'm one of those people, with, I don't mind spending more if I get the right piece of, of equipment and it holds up and I can be what, pretty what he's tough. saying is he's really good at breaking things. Yeah. Mike. I'm tough on stuff, you know, <laughs> and I've got, you know, my wife, I'm going to, I'm going to blame this on my wife. You know, she's bad about leaving my binoculars out. I get really annoyed with her. I'm like, put them back in the case, please. You know, <laughs> but my stuff gets, it gets beat on pretty good. So 
in terms of durability, what, what do we need to be looking for? Uh, because if, like I, I mentioned at the beginning of this show, if I go into a store and I grab two pairs of binoculars and look at them, I really can't tell a big difference just to look at them. What do we need to be paying attention to in terms of durability? You're right about the store comment, because when you're in a retail store with lots of light, basically everything looks pretty good. You know, so, you know, that that's actually what you see now getting into the durability discussion, you know, it's, listen, it's a, it's a mechanical tool. If you run over it with your quad or your horse steps on it, it's going to break. You know, I spent a lot of time out West and the mountains are rocky and they're rough and you're, you know, rocks are coming out from underneath your feet and yeah, you crash down on your rifle and your rifle scope. Sometimes you just do Um, binoculars fall out of tree stands. Sometimes they land on a rock, they break. So, you know, durability is is a key, is a key part of how tough are your optics. You know, when it comes to binoculars specifically, you know, if over the years, binoculars have got better and better and tougher and tougher. And, you know, the, the premium brands are mostly using a magnesium body. Magnesium bodies generally decrease the weight of the binocular and it increases the strength over aluminum. Steel's too heavy. Guys don't want that. But magnesium is a tougher material than aluminum. So most of the premium binoculars these days are made with magnesium Um, and magnesium is now moving down into the, the mid, you know, the mid price products as well. You want to make sure if you're on a limited budget, you can't afford a very expensive binocular, stay away from a plastic hinge product. They don't maintain their alignment very well. They break pretty easy when it's frozen and you, you know, I've seen, you know, low end binoculars break when it's really cold outside because the plastic's more brittle and uh, it doesn't take much you know, to damage them. So the body material is important. The underbody material, I should say, is important. And the exterior is also equally important. Make sure the binocular is armor coated. There's a lot of rubber armorings out there. Some are, some are a little tackier to the feel. Some are a little, you know, tougher rubber around the binocular. But if it's a binocular that has plastic inserts or, you know, a lower grade material, that's going to also decrease the toughness of that optic. It definitely makes sense, man. That's some great information there. I want to bring you back a little bit. You're talking about cold. One of the most frustrating things in the world is being out there. You're out there super early. It's cold as heck. You just walked a little ways to your stand. You start to see a little bit. You put your binoculars up and they fog up and you can't see that big deer. And the same thing with the scope. You know, you throw your scope up. You're a little sweaty. You got some heat coming off of you. Throw up your scope. You either get a big glare or fog or both. So what can be done in the construction of binoculars to kind of prevent or mitigate those fog and glare issues? Yeah, there's two kinds of fogging issues that come to light here. One is if there's any internal fogging of the optic. Now you've got a product that needs to be fixed. The better products are all nitrogen purged. So, you know, companies like GPO, what we'll do is we'll um, attach a vacuum to the optic before we seal it up. We'll draw all the ambient air out that has normal moisture in it will fill that product with dry nitrogen and then seal it up tight. So you can't get any condensation from temperature changes inside the binocular. Now, condensation on the exterior lenses when it's cold, that's a problem with physics because, you know, your your eyeball is wet and it's warm, right? Right. And when you got those binoculars around your neck and those lenses are frozen cold, and when your eye, warm eye comes up to a cold frozen or, you know, cold or frozen lens, condensation from your eye gets onto the glass. You can, you can minimize that. There are some materials out there that, that minimize exterior fogging on lenses, some solutions that don't damage the, the coatings of the lenses. You know, one suggestion, you can find them in eyeglass shops, for example. The trick that I use is I, I try to maintain the temperature of those binoculars to the temperature of my eyes. So I don't want my binoculars are never around my neck and on the front of my chest. They're around my neck and they're inside my shirt. Hmm. So when they come out of my shirt to look, you know, I keep it a little unbuttoned or a little unzipped and I keep them down there where the binoculars stay warm. When they come out to look, there's no cold warm thing from my eye to the back lens. And you're, you you know, you're not going to get fogging up where God, I can't see anything right now. Fogging on the exterior front lens, if it's wet or it's humid outside, Again, condensation is created due to a temperature change. So I know guys that uh, keep their binoculars in the tent with them at night. Um, I know guys that leave them outside at night of the tent. And yeah, if they're cold in the morning, yeah, it can drive you crazy. It can just drive you crazy. So I keep mine warm inside my shirt. That's one of the kind of an insider trick I use. Yeah, absolutely. 
That's a great idea. I've always been kind of like, I've been doing it wrong. You know, I've been leaving my optics. Like if it's, if I know it's going to be really cold in the morning, I'll leave them like in my truck where yeah, me too. I know that they're going to get cold. I've always thought that if they were the temp, you know, same temperature as the air. I always leave my um, rifle outside. Same, same thing. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'm definitely going to give that a shot now. Keep them in. So make me feel better too, having them inside with me. But that's uh, right. <laughs> so this is something that I've run into with binoculars in particular, and and that's getting them focused correctly. I'd, it seems like I just sometimes I, I just can't get them. Be- I'll get them where I want them. Well, and every it seems like every pair is different too. You got to focus your right eye and then your left yeah. eye and then both eyes. So what do we need to be looking for in terms of variability there? Like, is there certain construction or certain features that allow a person to get focused easier if they're not an optics expert and understand what they're actually trying to do? They're just trying to look and get focused. Yeah, I mean, everybody's eyes, your left eye, right eye, one's always a little stronger than the other. Um, And binocular companies recognize that. And so all binoculars company, uh, binocular companies allowed you to adjust the diopter to balance the strength between your left eye, right eye. Same, same way way with me using eyeglasses, you know, one eye stronger than the other. And my eyeglasses take that into consideration when they make me eyeglasses. Binoculars are no different um, whether you wear eyeglasses or not. So there is going to be a set, a setting that all people have to go through. What I've always done to explain to people is let's keep this simple. You need to adjust a binocular like you read a book, left or right. The the center focus will move two lenses simultaneously. So, you know, when you look far, when you look close, you're using a center focus knob and things are in focus, you know, near or far. So the binoculars, most binoculars, the diopter to balance that is usually on the right eye. Some of the diopters lock out there. Some of the diopters don't lock, but it will be an adjustment you have to make normally one time if the diopter locks or sometimes only one time if the diopter doesn't lock and you're not bumping it or moving it. But you want to center focus your left eye because you got two lenses moving. And then with the diopter on the right, you want to fine tune your right eye to the same object. Pick an object. 75, 100 yards away that you can focus on that's within infinity distance as far as you can see and further than close distance. So 50, 75 yards is somewhere in between on a binocular focus and use the center focus, focus your left eye, use the diopter to focus your right on the same object. And then after that, that center focus knob will move those two lenses simultaneously. So things near or far will all be in focus. You've been doing that right, Butch? Uh, definitely not. I don't think. <laughs> I haven't either. I no. always thought the diopter, and, and you just taught me the word, yeah. but I always thought the diopter, you you focused your dominant eye. So I always been, do my I'm, right I'm eye right first. eye dominant. I've been sitting there focusing that, that right eye and then play with the center focus to get And I never am quite, I'm just, I can tell there's just a little bit of difference. So Same, me too. That's awesome. And, and I guess, you know, I've seen on some binoculars where you've got a, correct me if my, my vernacular is wrong here, but the, the diopter focus is in, in the center, like just like the center focus, you can kind of go like it clicks back out or forth. clicks in. Right. And then others that diopter is on the actual eyepiece. I prefer the center diopter focus. Is there any magic to either one? Is it just something, no. is there advantage Set, to either one? Center diopter focuses are almost always a locking diopter, which is definitely a step up. It's a, you'll find it in the more expensive and a better quality product. Gotcha. And it does work the same way as the right eye diopter does, but it's working off of your center focus wheel. So what you would do in that case is you would when both lenses are engaged, nor- normal uh, focusing, you know, looking through a binocular, same process. You center focus your left eye and then you pop the diopter out. You right eye, you know, you right side focus your right eye to the same object. You pop it in so it locks. And now that diopter is locked in place. And you'll find locking diopters on a better quality products, more expensive like products. It. More expensive to make. It's more expensive to keep precise. It's a better tool for the guy that you're never going to knock it out of, you know, out of focus. It's an advantage, definitely an advantage. Good to know. Guys, let's take a quick break and hear from this week's sponsors. Southern Seed and Feed, do you want to provide better nutrients to your deer? If so, try Southern Buck Food Plot Blends. Your deer will love it. At Southern Seed and Feed, they specialize in making textured feed for horses, cattle, sheep, goats, hogs, chickens, small animals, and wildlife. Their products are proven irresistible, scientifically formulated to promote excellent herd health and hunter satisfaction. They supply products to various distributors throughout the South. So visit their website at southernseedfeed.com or call 662 
726-2638 to find the dealer nearest you. And also brought to you by Brush Clearing Services. Are you interested in building a healthy, sustainable habitat for a wide range of wildlife? If so, Brush Clearing Services and their 20 years of wildlife management experience should be your first choice. Brush Clearing Services Environmental Land Clearing Treatment selectively removes vegetation, leaving desirable trees and root structures undisturbed. Mulch left on site accelerates natural decomposition and reduces soil erosion while increasing soil moisture. Check out their full line of property and land services at www.brushclearingservices.com or call them at 706-718-1690. I mentioned that uh, my wife's always stealing my binoculars and (laughs) that's the... That's just the harsh truth. When I get them back, it's almost like somebody else been driving my truck. You know, the seat's all messed up. <laughs> I just don't like the way she leaves it. So, you know, her, her eye relief's a lot different than mine. And I, I also wear eyeglasses, gotten to wear, you know, sometimes I wear them in the field, sometimes I don't. What do we need to know about eye cups and what, what do we need to be thinking about in terms of eye relief? Is there a lot of variability there in different designs? There's a huge variability from little to too much um, in the binocular world. To get a full field of view, uh, the surface of your eye has to be a designated distance from that back ocular lens. This is called eye relief, and it's always measured in millimeters. Some binoculars have 10, 12 millimeters of eye relief. Some binoculars have 18, 20 millimeters of eye relief, but that's the distance between your eye and the back lens where you're gaining a full optical picture. You don't have blackouts on the sides or you're looking through little tiny holes. And everybody's eye relief, how you put the binoculars to your face, because, you know, Butch's face and your face and my face, they're all constructed a little bit differently. Individuals use the binoculars differently, even if it's the same binocular. So yes, this binocular, for example, needs 13 millimeters of eye relief, but my eye sockets are a little further back and I shove the binoculars in my face a little differently. That eye relief, again, the better quality products that are out there, you see it transitioning now into the mid products, that eye relief, the longer the eye relief, the more flexibility you have. And that eye relief, if you have an adjustable eye cup where you can change that, is a huge, huge advantage. Some of the older binoculars had rubber eye cups and you were really kind of stuck with one eye relief. You can maybe fold them down and you had two options, but now all the binoculars out there, they have rotating eye cups or adjustable eye cups and you can set it wherever is comfortable for you and how you use your binoculars. Yep. That's definitely how mine are. What brings me to weight? Let's talk about weight a little bit. You know, you think like this is like Joe was talking about, you know, you got a big pair of binoculars around your neck. They're primarily, you're going to be carrying them up trees, down trees, through the woods. You know, you, I think lighter would be better for the most part, but as far as weight goes, you know, I, I shoot a, a 12 gauge better than I shoot a 20 gauge because it's a heavier gun. Um, is there any weight to stabilization as far as the weight of your binoculars go? A little bit. Um, I think it has to do with the individual as well. Growing up out West, I used big binoculars around my neck. I was carrying a big pair of 1560s around my neck for years and years and years. And when you're young and you're tough and you're stable, yeah, I could still handhold a pair of 15 power binoculars. And it really wasn't due to the weight, but the magnification also affects the, how stable they are to you. Sure. As you get older, you know, hand holding a pair of 15s or sometimes even hand holding a pair of 10 power binoculars gets a little tough. And people say, well, why does it look like I'm shaking so much? And, you know, the example I always use is, well, hold your hand up as still as you can in front of your face. It's still moving, right? You can't Mm -hmm. hold your hand perfectly still. The, The best you can do, it's still moving. Well, when you're holding a pair of 10 power binoculars, take that movement and magnify it times 10. Right. And that's the image that you're looking at. So when you're holding a pair of 10 power binoculars, if you're really steady, you can, most hunters are comfortable with a pair of 10 power binoculars. Some are not. Some hunters are comfortable hand holding 12s or hand holding 15s. It's up really up, you know, to the individual there, but weight does help a little bit, but quite honestly, the weight of the binocular, uh, binocular companies are chasing weight because mostly guys just don't want weight around their neck right? Uh, or they're cutting their 
you know, the, the total ounces in her backpack or trying to shave two ounces off of something here or there. Cause you know, us guys were very weight conscious on how much, you know, we really want to carry. So binoculars chase lower weight, binocular companies chase lower weight because the market wants a lighter weight binocular, but that's an evil twin. I can say there's a double-sided sword there that good binoculars, the glass is very dense and most of the weight of a binocular, believe it or not, does not come from the body, doesn't come from the magnesium, doesn't come from the rubber armoring around. Most of the weight of a good binocular, when you think, man, these things are heavy and they're not that big. Why are they so heavy? The glass is so dense. It's 90% of the weight. Good glass. Yeah. Um, good glass is just heavy. If it's a binocular that's super lightweight, it's like, wow, these things are super light. Well, you should ask yourselves, why are they so light? Because the body's light. That means the lenses inside maybe are thinner or of a different material. That's how you can cut weight. So when you're dealing with premium optical companies and premium glass, they're all fairly dense. And um, then the weight is going to be based on how much you want to stick around your neck. I think that you can look at to firearms as an example. There's a ton of, you know, this is the ultralight model. Like you said, guys are cutting the handles off their toothbrush to save a little bit of a weight. <laughs> it all adds up. Hey, it that's all adds back, up. Back and, that's yeah. me. But I'd, I'd much rather cut the handle off my toothbrush than than give up anything in optics. I've never got and the same, kind of same thing with a rifle. You know, I'm I've got a, a 270 that I carry almost everywhere. It, it weighs about nine pounds when it's you know fully ready to hunt and. I've never really said like, I really need two pounds off this gun. Like it, it, I'd rather have it a gun that I'm comfortable with that I shoot well and carry an extra two pounds. Now, granted, I hunt a lot in the deep South. We're not having to, right. We don't trick across mountains. 13 miles (laughs) a day up and down the mountains, but I could see where it is kind of a trade-off, but I think the number one thing that I think about, and I don't know if everybody else is this way, but I tend to think about magnification and objective. You know, I got, eight by 42s or 10 by 50s or 12 by 12 by 50s or like you said, 15 by 60s. And my natural tendency is just to think, well, more has got to be better, right? Like if, if 12 power is good, then 15 power is better, right? So help me kind of take me through why I wouldn't want the most right. power and what's the most the, What's the trade-off? Yeah, what's the trade-off uh, with getting something that's got more magnification and I guess with objective, you're looking for more, more light gathering. I mean, why, why do we want a bigger objective? Yeah. I, I mentioned earlier in the, in the podcast about the beam of the light that comes out of the back of the binoculars and how mm-hmm. important that is to your eye in low light condition. Uh, that beam of light is measured in millimeters and it's a mathematical equation that creates that diameter of beam of light. So a 10 by 42 binocular, the most common size out there. If you take 42 and you divide it by 10, that gives you 4.2. That means that's giving you a 4.2 millimeter beam of light, which is called exit pupil coming out of that binocular, 4.2 millimeters. It's pure mathematics. A 15 by 60 binocular, big objective lens, lots of power. 15 goes into 60. How many times? Five times is giving you, is that five times? Four times. Uh, that's giving you a four millimeter beam of light. Okay. So what does that have to do with the guy in the field? Well, what it has to do with the guy in the field is I'm going to continue to reference, you know, my experience, which is out West hunting. You're out West and you got a pair of 1560s on a tripod, right? That's giving you a four millimeter beam of light. You're out there in the dark waiting for the sun to come up and your pupils sitting there at five or six millimeters big open saying, feed me more light. So that bigger objective lens and that high magnification is giving you a four millimeter beam of light. When when it starts to get light and your pupils finally shrink down to to four millimeters, you'll see that balancing as far as, okay, this is is as bright as the binocular is going to look. If you're hunting and low light is your most critical thing, guys in Texas who are sitting in a box stand waiting for a deer to come to a feeder that they've been watching for months, for example, you could use like an, an eight by 56, you know, low magnification, big giant objective lens is going to give you 56 divided by eight, the seven. Okay. Seven millimeter beam of light. Uh, that's a perfect example of uh, your eyes open to seven millimeters saying, feed me more light. You've got a good binocular transmitting 92% of the available light, giving you a seven millimeter beam of light. 
And you look through those binoculars in the dark and it's like, oh my God, I, I can almost see it dark with these. Why can I almost see it dark with an eight by 56? And I can't see it dark when I look through these 1042s. Yeah. Well, because, because the beam of light smaller and your eye needs that light that that binocular can transmit. So there's a balance on what you're going to use it for. 1042, as I say, is the common size. You got a lot of guys east of the Mississippi that are saying, I just don't need the magnification. So what should I use? And I immediately tip them to an eight by 42 instead of a 10 by 42, because they don't need the magnification for the distance. They're in a more dense hunting environment where the light's lower. An eight by 42 is going to give you a larger beam of light getting to your eye. It's advantage, advantage, advantage when people say, oh, I got to have a 10 by 42. It's really not the best binocular for certain hunting conditions all applications right it's it's not the best one for all applications it's really not and it's the number one requested item for many times the wrong reason that's uh that's a great explanation and absolutely you know pardon the pun shed some light on (laughs) i was just gonna say it's (laughs) eye-opening yeah (laughs) (laughs) but true i mean truthfully i i i did not Uh, i didn't know that i mean i I had no idea it, it makes a lot of sense to me because when i get in a low light situation and I'm looking through a rifle scope, I back my magnification Always. as far out as I can. So mm-hmm. for, for me, if I've got a rifle scope, I want as much variability in magnification as I can have. You know, I, I want to have something that can go two power to 20 power if possible. And, and now I'm learning makes total sense. I just don't know why I never related it to binoculars. I've always been thinking like, well, I want to be able to see farther. I want to be able to see, you know, closer up. But mm-hmm. in reality, the most of the time when I'm using binoculars, it is a low light, it's a low situation. light situation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so if that's my focus, I need to be on a lower power and then as high of an objective as I can get in a lower power. Correct. The and the large, larger objective trade-off there. It's going to be bigger. It's going to be heavier. It's going to be a little bulkier. If you don't mind carrying something a little larger around your neck, then yes, a lower power binocular with a larger objective lens hung around your neck for low light situations gives you more advantages than that little extra magnification for power trying to judge. I don't know. Is that is that a cheater or a kicker off the left side or <laughs> right or yeah. It's either a shooter or it's not a shooter, and two power magnification generally doesn't. Not going to make him big enough. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, yeah that's Man, true. That's well, incredibly and educational. That was awesome. What I'm hearing too is that uh, I've got now a reason to go buy another pair of binoculars, and that's I can just hearing. give my wife the pair that I don't want to use. You know, yep. so have different ones for different reasons. <laughs> I like what I'm hearing. So you've mentioned you've hit on it a few times throughout the show, but like we said in the beginning, there is a ton of range in prices on mm-hmm. all optics, but binoculars are, are no different. Take me through the difference. Why, why do we see, you know, the $150 pair of binoculars and the $2,500 pair of binoculars? And, you know, what are you really getting and, and where do you feel like the value lies in terms of buying a pair of binoculars? It's not something you change every year. You know, this is, can, can be something you buy gosh, for, and, and use for decades. Mm-hmm. So after uh, doing this podcast, I think I know the main answer to that question. Glass. <laughs> yeah. I mean, is it just glass? I mean, what all goes into it? I'm, I'm going to take you back about 20 years and 20 years ago from a low price binocular to Swarovski wasn't around. Zeiss was the leader then to the best, best Zeiss binocular you could buy back then. The optical variations were huge from a low price binocular to the best binocular out there was like night and day difference in optical quality and how you could see and how clear it was. But over the last 20 years, that optical quality has gotten closer and closer and closer and closer together. So there's some you know, lower priced um, entry price products that are actually pretty exceptional and better than Zeiss made 20 years ago. Now, the best binoculars out there, these companies like GPO, we're trying to say, where is the threshold between the best optical level that the human eye can detect or the best optical level that's theoretically possible? And people say, why is there such a jump between a $1,000 pair of binoculars and a $3,000 pair of binoculars? And I can't see much difference. The difference is there. The human eye just can't, mostly just can't see it. And the analogy I use to people, and that is, well, 
Think of how much money it costs to get an extra quarter mile an hour speed out of a Formula One car. That's what's happening in that ultra premium class of optics. The cost it takes to build that level of perfection is immense and it's built into the product. The challenge with that, though, is the technology of optics from low price to high price has got very smashed together now. So you can get $500 binoculars that are excellent. You can get $1,000 binoculars that you can't see an optical difference between a $1,000 binocular and a $3,000 pair of binoculars. It's maybe there somewhere, but the, that standard of optical quality has really gotten crushed together in the last year. So, you know, I'm telling our market, I'm telling, you know, your listeners, uh, I'm not selling any particular brand, but, you know, look at what your budget is, you know, what you can actually afford and buy the best you can afford because the best you can afford is going to be better than anything you could have bought 20 years ago. And most time, you know, once, once you're in the $500 price point binocular, you probably have something that could last you a lifetime and that is functioning at 90, 95% of an item that's 10 times priced higher. So, you know, it's, they're, they're very close together, um, but price starts to really jump for those small incremental gains in optics. Very good advice. Very good advice. And yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you broke it down that way because I've, I've said the same thing. I can't, you know, I just felt like maybe I just don't know what I'm looking for that I can't see the immediate difference, you know, but I've heard that same analogy used with televisions. You know, they talk about- right different resolutions and how many pixels there are and everything. And basically, you know, once you get above a certain number of pixels, your eye can't. Right. Can't even differentiate. Right. So that makes a lot of sense to me. You know, there's, there's some guys out there that simply, you know, are, are brand loyal or they, you know, like me, I'm kind of an optic snob. I want the best and perfect. That's, I mean, that's what those products are made for those, you know, for those customers. Absolutely no problem with that. But the majority of us, you know, there's, you know, there's price ranges we can live within. So that is my, that is always my recommendation. Pick the price range that you're comfortable in, compare two or three models out there that are, you know, that, that are the most you can afford. And optics in the old days, you would say you kind of getting what you're paying for. So you're paying for more, you're getting better optics. But these days, since that optical quality is so close between mid and high price products, you know, pick what fits your budget compare a few models and um, you're going to, you're going to end up getting a pretty good product. Mike done a great job today answering all our questions. I think that pretty much wraps it up for very, very educational podcast. Really enjoyed it. Mr. Mike. Uh, You guys are very welcome. If folks want to go check out German precision optics, um, how should they follow you guys? I mean, where, where can they get more information? Yeah, they can uh, go to our website at gpo-usa.com look at everything we have to offer. And off that website, they can, you know, choose to follow us. We've got several Facebook pages, Instagram pages, uh, ha- happy to have all the followers. You know, we, we post a lot of educational information. There's a lot, uh, you know, a lot of uh, new product development information. So they're nice pages to follow, but that's probably the easiest way to see what we're doing and consider us when, when they're ready to buy. Perfect. Well, Mike, thanks a lot, man. Uh, we appreciate your, your insight and we know who to call whenever we got to talk about scopes. That's the That's next. Right. <laughs> yeah. I've got, I've got experience on that side too. So ha- happy to share what I know guys. All right, guys, let's take a quick break. Don't forget about our sponsors and make sure you support them when you're out in the marketplace. Bucks Island Marine. At BucksIsland.com, you can check out the full list of inventory from new and used bass, pontoon, and bow rider style boats, new and used motors, as well as kayaks. They love trade-ins, which provides a steady stream of used boats, and they can rig your boat at their 18-bay service department or ship your new motor anywhere in the United States. They provide boat service on all kinds of boats, even if they weren't purchased from Bucks. They have factory-trained and certified technicians, so visit them at 4500 Highway 77 in Southside, Alabama, or give them a call at 256-442-2588. And also brought to you by Dixie Supply and Baker Metalworks. Dixie Supply and Baker Metalworks are proud to be your metal roofing headquarters for over 40 years. Save time and money by buying from the most reliable manufacturer on the Gulf Coast. If you buy it today, you pick it up today. They offer 20 Sherwin-Williams colors to choose from and a 40-year warranty. Baker Metal and Dixie Supply, two names, 
same great service. With the addition of their new store in Cantonment, Florida, they now have eight locations to serve you. Dixie Supply and Baker Metalworks, your metal roofing headquarters. That really was eye-opening, Butch. It was, man. It was incredibly, incredibly educational. I've been hunting and using binoculars on boats since I could walk. Um, and he really, really, really broke it down. And you were doing it way wrong the whole time, weren't you? <laughs> yeah, you, you had it right, though, right? I mean, oh, of course. I've known that right. my whole life. <laughs> no, man, I, I have been. I mean, that's three decades of using binoculars incorrectly. I just I feel kind of dumb for not knowing. But at the same time, I'm glad I know now. Cause I was well, I having think, this trouble just the other day trying to get focused in the field. And I was like, just couldn't quiet. I was messing with the diopter. It was just, do, just doing the wrong. There's another fun word I learned today. That's fun. Yeah. I'm going to use that one. Diopter. Fun with words. Yeah, that's right. But yeah, man, I, it was really, really cool how he just broke it down. Um, you know, we focus on gathering light and he said, that's not really what you need to focus on at all. It's how much light is passing through. Isn't that correct? What he said, you can break it down to a mathematical equation. Yeah, uh, you know, like it's transmission, like, not light gathering. It's yeah, who cares? It doesn't matter how much you gather; it's how much you transmit to your eye. To your eye, it doesn't matter. You know, so it's kind of like the difference between horsepower and torque. You know, like right. you can say, "Hey, my truck's got 400 horsepower," but if it but doesn't if that ain't get going that to the rear wheels, it don't matter. Right. Well, and if it if you don't get that horsepower until way later in the torque band, then it doesn't feel like it's a fast vehicle until you get up to higher speeds. Whereas for me, you know, like with the truck, I want it to go from zero to 60 really fast. I don't really want to go all that fast. I like the old man drive. So you need to torque. It's it's the same thing. You know, I I was focused on horsepower when I should have been paying attention to torque. And it's the same thing with these binoculars. I've been focused on objective focused on magnification when I should have been paying attention to coatings and transmission, Transmission, you know, just really just transmission, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And then the big, to me, the big thing that I've been doing wrong is I had that magnification objective combination all messed up. I would have, you just said to me, Joe, uh, we want to go, we're going to be hunting in nothing but a low light position, low light conditions. Here's a pair of eight by eight by 42s. And here's a pair of of, uh, 15 by 60s. You know, I've got to be better. I'll carry them for you. Which one do you want? I would choose a 15 by 60s. Right. Bigger's better, right? Yeah. Yeah. Not necessarily. No. Not Not what the man said. Not for light gathering. Right. So, yeah. I mean, I would, I've always just been of the mindset like, I want the more power. I want the bigger objective. That was a big, big thing I learned from today. And, and I thought he just great job on very much so. You go look at the the. Hey, if he can explain it that well to us, dumb high tech rednecks, you can explain it to anybody, and they can understand it. Right. I mean, the thing <laughs> is, like, if you go grab, go go pick three optics manufacturers out, go look at their website and read their technical specifications. You'll be like, I don't know what any of that means. No. Yeah. Agreed. Pretty much boiled it down to focus on light transmission. You want to find something that's ninety percent or above. And then you got to ask yourself, what kind of conditions do I hunt in and what's most important to me out of this pair of binoculars? And uh, yep. th- after that, it's just kind of like pick them up, hold them, pick the color you like. Yep. Pocketbook. <laughs> Go for Pretty it. Match it to your budget. Yep. Yeah. And uh, it was also cool to hear how the technology has really kind of closed the gap on the top end and the bottom end. Yep. Yeah. Kind of yeah. the same way we were talking with... Uh... Axel, kind of the same thing. He was talking about how, you know, what a $2,000 pair cost 20 years ago. Yeah. Now it's $200 and it's better technology than it was. Oh, it's like the same thing. Like, same, like, talk, go back to trucks. I mean, my F 150, if you look at the technical specifications, horsepower, torque, you look at all those things, towing capacity, my F 150 acts like an F 250 from the early 2000s. Right. So, yeah. I mean, it's just, you really got to understand the technical specifications enough to be able to compare things. And, uh, we're living in a heck of a time, man. Get you a really nice pair of binoculars for not that much money and have them last a really long time. And, uh, that's, but also if you're, if you're carrying around a pair of 15 year old binoculars, time to upgrade, time to get some new ones. It ain't going to cost you that much money. So very cool stuff, man. Fun show. Enjoyed it, buddy. Me too. Well, folks, that is going to wrap it up this week. Appreciate you joining us. We want to make it easy for you to listen. So here's a handy option for you. To get the podcast emailed to you each week, just text the word hunting to 773-770-4377. Again, just text the word hunting to 773-770-4377. You'll join our email list. 
And wherever you are listening to podcasts, go ahead, subscribe, rate, and review. Send us a written review. We'd love to hear from you. If you've got a show topic that you are interested in and like to see us cover, just email us at pros at landhunting.com. That's going to do it for us. Y'all stay safe out there. We'll talk to you next time. This week's Sunland show is brought to you by First South Farm Credit. First South can help you finance or refinance that perfect piece of land. To find out how First South can help you, visit their website at firstsouthland.com or call them at 800-955-1722. They are an equal housing lender. And also by Patatas Defense. The Patatas Defense PD Pro Ultra Light, Ultra Compact Night Vision System. Simply the best in class night vision systems ever built. Contact PatanasDefense.com to learn more. Patanas Defense, Masters of Darkness. And also brought to you by Alabama Farmers Co op. Alabama Farmers Cooperative has been serving gardeners, farmers, and everyone in between for 85 years. Visit www.alafarm.com for more information and to find a co op near you. And also, Boaters List. Boaters List is your new, reliable, and fast resource designed to link everyone to everything on the water. Locate anything from fuel docks to service repairs or rentals of large yachts all the way down to paddle boards and all things in between. BoatersList.com will always strive to make it better on the water.